is found in 2 Peter 3, 1 through 14. I'm going to read verses 3 through 4 and 8 through 14. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should receive repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace. This is the word of the Lord. We've just come out of Advent, a time of anticipation, of looking forward. But anticipating who? Looking forward to what? Most would respond, well, the birth of Jesus, of course. After all, it's Christmas, you know. Yes, I know it's Christmas. And by the way, it still is Christmas. Christmas technically doesn't end until January 6th, which is Epiphany, or in some cultures, Three Kings Day. And if you're a purist about the season, your tree doesn't come down until then. Now, if you're a really true purist, right now your house is full of geese laying, golden rings, calling birds, French hens, turtle doves, and at least one partridge in a pear tree. On the way... Our drummers drumming, pipers piping, ladies dancing, lords a-leaping, maids a-milking, and swans a-swimming. Sounds a bit messy and noisy to me. Although, golden rings, I would be good with. And be sure, during Advent we were anticipating the arrival of Christ. But notice, I said arrival, not birth. Fleming Rutledge, an Episcopal priest, offers a different view of Advent, one that is grounded in early church history. In her book, Advent, The Once and Future Coming of Christ, she agrees that preparing our hearts for the birth of Jesus is part of Advent. But a truer focus is on the second coming of Christ, who will arrive in glory on the last day to consummate the kingdom of God. She explains, in a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. It can well be called the time between because the people of God lie in the time between the first coming of Christ incognito in the stable at Bethlehem and his second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. In the time between our lives are hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is our life appears then we also will appear with him in glory. Advent contains within itself the crucial balance of the now and the not yet that our faith requires. The now and the not yet 
that our faith requires. It's an important concept to keep in mind. We're in the time between. Now, if you were here on Sunday, December 2nd, you heard Pastor Dan's first sermon in his Advent series. He addressed the issue of hope and what hope means for those of us who are Christians. He stated, in common modern speech, we use the word hope for future events that might or might not happen. He explained in scripture, the word hope is used for future events that are 100% certain, but that require patience. He gave the example from Psalm 130, verse 6, that declares, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Then he clarified, The sun is coming up tomorrow, and the watchman knows that for sure. But until the sun does come up, the watchman is left in a state of waiting and hoping. There's no uncertainty But still, the watchman must be patient. Dan went on. Every time the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about a mere wish or aspiration or dream. It's not talking about something that may or may not come to pass. When the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about an absolute certainty. But a certainty we have to wait for. For me, this brings to mind those... Videos people post on social media with the admonition, wait for it. You know, if you, the implied promises, if you watch the entire thing, at the end, there will be a surprise, a twist, an aha, or an oh no moment. Sometimes that moment comes. Other times, we merely think, well, there went three minutes of my life I'm never going to get back. Not all wait for it moments or videos are worth it. Unlike the promise of a new heaven and a new earth, which is a wait-for-it sure thing. The promise of a new heaven and new earth, the promise of our final redemption and resurrection, is our solid hope. And it's plastered all throughout scripture. It is what we are waiting for. As 1 Peter 3.13 states, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, if we are all regular readers of the Bibles, which I hope we are, we can see that the overarching message through the entire Bible is look forward in hope. In the Old Testament, everything points toward the coming of the Messiah. In the New Testament, everything points toward the second coming of Christ. It's only at the end of Revelation that we land in the eternal now. Scripture also makes clear that as we are in this wait-for-it mode, in the meantime, we can expect a somewhat rough-and-tumble life. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be suffering. There will be hard times. That final promise is not yet realized, but it's coming, even if what we see now denies that. In John 16.33, Jesus straight out declares, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now the Amplified Classic Version expands on tribulation adding, and trials, and distress, and frustration. Oy vey. But wait for it. The Amplified Version goes on, exhorting, But be of good cheer, take courage, be confident, certain, undaunted, for I have overcome the world. I have deprived it of power to harm you and have conquered it for you. Well, glory! 
Okay, I'm going to take a little sidebar here. When I was a kid and the family would be out driving in the car on a Sunday afternoon, it would get very quiet. Suddenly my dad would go, Glory! Scare the bejeebers out of us. Mom would smack him on the, sh- on the arm and say, Walter Ray, don't ever do that. And of course, Walter Ray did it every single time. And the apple does not fall far from the tree. Let's review where we are so far. We've just come out of Advent. We've just celebrated the birth of Jesus. We've now learned that Advent points not just to the nativity, but more so to the second coming of Christ to which we should always be looking forward. And we've learned that life is hard, but Jesus has our backs. And that's just the preamble to the introduction. So now what? How are we supposed to live in this time between? First, it's important to understand the impermanence of the now. In his book, a title I considered borrowing for this sermon, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson writes, For recognizing and resisting the stream of the world's ways, there are two biblical designations for people of faith that are extremely useful, disciple and pilgrim. He explains, Disciple says we are people who spend our lives apprenticed to our master, Jesus Christ. We are in a growing learning relationship always. We do not acquire information about God, but skills in faith. Peterson continues, the label pilgrim tells us we are a people who spend our lives going someplace going to God, uh, and whose path for getting there is the way, Jesus Christ. We realize that this world is not my home and set out for the Father's house. This is reinforced in 1 Peter 2.11 that declares, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh which wage war against your soul. And in Hebrews 13.14, which states, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Second, while we don't want to get too attached, we also don't want to get distracted. Now, I once heard that the secret of patience is to do something else in the meantime. What that means is when we're sitting in the car repair place, uh, waiting room, or waiting for dough to rise, we distract ourselves from the waiting by doing something else, a different activity. It's like when you're on the way to grandma's house and the three-year-old in the back seat keeps asking, and this is a real-time reenactment, are we there yet? Are we there now? How about now? Are we there now? To keep from going insane, you try to engage them in a game or some activity to take their minds off the trip. Now, in these simple, down-to-earth scenarios, distraction may be fine. But when it comes to the anticipation we are to hold as we wait for the return of Christ, distraction can be deadly. It can take our eyes off of the glorious then, the not yet goal of heaven, and focus our attention on the frenetic now. Perhaps we can take a hint from that three-year-old in the back seat. Instead of asking, are we there yet? We may want to be asking, is he here yet? Is he here now? How about now? Instead of distraction, we need to be engaged. In 2 Peter 3, 11 through 14, we catch a glimpse of the how not and the how to for living in the now. Here's the passage as rendered in the NIV. 
Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Dear friends, be spotless, be blameless, be at peace with him. From this, I believe we can derive three guidelines for living in this time between. We are to be pursuing holiness, spotless, doing justice, blameless, living community, friends at peace. So let's look at each of these. First, pursuing holiness. When I was a kid and the preacher would haul out 1 Peter 1.16, I was terror-stricken. You shall be holy, for I am holy, declares the verse. Me? Holy? Like God? Even at a young age, I had a fair awareness of my own sin, and the idea of being holy felt pretty much impossible. Sure, as I got older, I followed the general guideline of, I don't drink, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do, but a don't do this and a don't do that admonition doesn't get at the heart of what holiness is. But backing up and putting that first Peter verse into a little context does help. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now it's becoming a little clearer. First, holiness involves relationship. Being an obedient child means that God is my father. Without relationship, holiness isn't possible. As Christians, by the sacrifice and intervention of Christ, we are in relationship with God. In fact, as Paul declares in Colossians 3.3, our life is hidden with Christ in God. Second, holiness involves our minds and behavior. We stop choosing to be foolish and start making smart choices. In Romans 12.2, Paul declares, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In the simplest sense, holiness accrues as we intentionally seek to conform to God's will by choosing right living and immersing ourselves in his word and seeking his face. It's called sanctification. Sanctification is the long, the lifelong process of working holiness into our lives. Holiness goes in, love comes out. Holiness goes in, graciousness comes out. Holiness goes in, forbearance comes out, and so on. Next, doing justice. Now, frequently when demanding justice, what we're really doing is insisting on what we perceive as our rights. We believe we deserve the better place in line. We deserve the bigger slice of pie, control over the TV remote, or the final word on the collar of the furniture. Yet justice is mostly about others. In his book, Generous Justice, Tim 
Tim Keller talks about a man who moved from his comfortable, safe neighborhood into a poor, depressed, crime-ridden area to do ministry. Keller explains, The man became concerned about the most vulnerable, poor, and marginalized members of our society and made long-term personal sacrifices in order to serve their interests, their needs, their cause. That is, according to the Bible, what it means to do justice. Keller goes on to explain that there are two Hebrew words in the Bible that are translated as justice. The primary word, mishpat, relates to acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. But beyond punishment or adjudication, Keller says the word means giving people their rights. It's the word used throughout the Old Testament that describes taking up the care and cause of widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Our HVPC deacons are experts at this form of justice. The second word is to say tzedakah, which can be translated as being just or being righteous. Keller explains that the word refers to day-to-day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity. Simply put, doing justice is a reflection of God's righteous and loving character. To be just, to bring justice, is to be like Christ. It is part of being an image bearer of God. James 1.27 declares, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And finally, living community. Believe it or not, I'm an introvert. An introvert, as an introvert, concepts like community are just a little off-putting. I mean, it implies uh, a party or a gathering with way too many people. And for me, any more than three is way too many. But I have to acknowledge that God said it's not good for man to be alone. For Christians, community is more intimate than mere numbers or proximity because we are defined as the body of Christ. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 12.12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. The analogy of Christian community as a body emphasizes that beyond vital interconnectedness, each person is valuable, important, and essential. Through community, we build up one another in Christ. Now, a distinct expression of this here at HVPC is through our small groups. I deeply value the times of sharing with other men that takes place twice a month at our Presbyterian Stogie Society Society meetings, even though there are always more than two or three guys there, which is a little much, but it's okay. It's in this smaller community of men that I can be more honest, receive genuine encouragement, and experience real godly love. And I know others who participate in other small groups will say the same thing. In community... We see we aren't alone in what life is throwing at us. Others also struggle with hard times. This brings peace of mind as we get to know each other better and we discover someone who has experienced a similar situation to ours and learn they came out on the other side. 
They survived. They grew. They were victorious. And now they are able to stand with us, providing encouragement, guidance, and wisdom. Now, by the way, if you haven't noticed, holiness, justice, and community overlap big time. We don't grow in holiness, and we can't experience justice without community. Healthy Christian community can't happen without justice and holiness. Proper justice can't happen without holiness or in isolation. The bottom line is, if we are truly in Christ, we will grow in holiness, act in justice, and operate in community. But you ask, okay, all that's nice. But what do these three things have to do with keeping heaven in sight? Okay. Do you remember the story in Luke 2 of Jesus getting lost from Mary and Joseph? The first part of the chapter tells the Christmas story. And there near the end, all of a sudden, Jesus is 12 years old and being left behind in Jerusalem after the Passover. Joseph and Mary track him down in the temple where he calmly declares, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? On earth, with Joseph, Jesus learned carpentry, but at the same time was always about his father's business, his eye on the ultimate goal. On Christian vocation, Nancy Piercy writes, In our work, we not only participate in God's providential activity today, we also foreshadow the task we will take up in cultivating a new earth at the end of time. In other words, as pilgrims and sojourners here in the time between, what we do now will have an impact then. When we are diligent to be about our Father's business by actively pursuing holiness, by doing justice, and by encouraging one another as we live in Christian community, we will never lose sight of our final goal and always live in anticipation of the coming of the Lord. So there you have it. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If this is true of us, if this is how we define ourselves, then we need to keep heaven in sight by always living in holiness, living in justice, and living in community. First John 2, 15-17 sums it all up, saying, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In this time between, let's keep on keeping on in holiness, justice, and community and keep on looking forward as we move into the new year. Thank you.